Financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm, as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegan, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Let me suggest that you go to one website for all three newsletters and also to access this radio program, as well as a, a number of in- video interviews that I do and, and also appearances uh, that I make uh, on CNBC, Fox, and BNN and the like. That website is jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com. No triple W's there, just jtaylormedia.com. If you go there, you can easily click onto the button that takes you right to this radio show, uh, and you can gain access to uh, Roger Wiegand's uh, newsletter, Chen Lin's newsletter, at least gain access to other websites that then uh, will help you subscribe. Uh, we do have a special offer. We like to tell you that we have one-time introductory offers because we'd like you to try these various newsletters to see if they are for you. Everybody's different. Their needs are different. Uh, My newsletter might fit some people, uh, but those that like to trade fast and furiously might like Chen Lin's letter or Roger Wiegand's letter. Both of those are more trading-orientated letters. My newsletter is more of of an investor-orientated, longer-term, value-orientated approach than what uh, either Chen or Roger uses, although I should mention that Chen, uh, Chen's approach is very much value-orientated as well. Uh, but, you know, Chen is really interested in the time value of money very wisely. That's why he's been able to take his uh, wife's investment of $4,300 back in uh, January of 2003, turned it into $1.3 million at the end of this last year. He's done it because he's very cognizant of the time value of money. So Chen might see something that he likes a lot, uh, but it might not be quite the right time, and he's thinking, I can get a little better deal if I wait a little while. Uh, and it's always a matter of where can I best put my money? Uh, you know, can I get a quicker, bigger return faster somewhere else? Well, that's Chen's style. It takes an awful lot of work. He works extremely hard, and he shares that information with his subscribers in what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. Roger's newsletter is also very good. He provides a lot of information in terms of trading. He uses technical analysis more than Chen does. And Roger's focuses more on the commodities and futures trading. So if you're interested in that, Roger Wiegand's letter, Trader Tracks, is an excellent uh, is an excellent 
excellent place to go. Again, you can call Claudio Bossi in our office at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. And Claudio uh, can give you, or not give you, he can help you uh, purchase one of these special one-time only low-priced trial subscriptions. Um, Anyway, on to today's show, we've got a really interesting person, Doug Casey. Many of you may know Doug Casey. Uh, he is a free market, uh, limited government advocate for sure. I think he's a brilliant investor. He's a brilliant mind. You talk about somebody who can think outside the box, somebody who is not persuaded, who is not influenced, uh, or let's say very minimally influenced by the propaganda machine that's all about us here with our with our television uh, and the press and so forth that is owned and operated by uh, by the ruling elite. Well, Doug is his own thinker, and he is just uh, he's brilliant. He's entertaining. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to Doug Casey when he comes on at about a half past three today. Um, we also will have, uh, in the second hour, uh, Amir Adnani. He is the president and CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation. That was a company that was a sponsor of this show last, uh, last year. I'm sorry, last uh, season, in the fall season. And Amir is going to talk to us about the surging price of uranium. Uranium is starting to rise very dramatically now. It, it did not participate with the general commodity move uh, some time ago, but it has really picked up uh, in a major way now. Uh, and uranium is going to do, uh, is, is rising very dramatically in price, but uh, it's also very interesting to note, uh, and I think more importantly, uh, that the United States is woefully short in its production of uranium to meet its own needs for nuclear power. Uh, so Amir and Nani will be coming on to talk about the, uh, the supply and demand for uranium. Um, we do have one sponsor currently uh, that is a sponsor of this show, uh, uranium uh, company that's Athabasca Uranium. They are more of an exploration company. We had them on and talked to us a, a week ago or so. They'll be coming on again to talk about their story. But uh, Amir's company is now going, set to be the next producer of uranium in the United States. So uh, I think you're going to want to hear what Amir has to say. Now, coming on in just a couple of minutes with us is going to be Joe Martin. Uh, and Joe is the proprietor of Cambridge House. Uh, Cambridge House is probably... Uh, well, I think it's it runs the best shows, the best conferences for mining, uh, for the mining sector. And there's a, a big conference coming up that I'm that I will be attending in Vancouver, and that's on the 23rd and 24th of this month, a little later. Joe Martin uh, will not only tell you about his conference, but he will also give you uh, some pretty good insights into the markets. You know, as a person who has to uh, find companies that will come and sponsor his shows, Joe is very, very much in tune with what is going on in the resource markets in Canada. Of course, I think Canada is the number one country in the world when it comes to uh, exploring and developing and producing mineral resources. They have the best, uh, the best scientists in the, the best geoscientists in the world, I think. Uh, it's a, it's a way, obviously, that that country has, uh, has earned, uh, has earned its keep and is doing very, very well, by the way. I see that the U.S., that the Canadian dollar is now, at least the last I looked, uh, was now stronger than or above par with the U.S. So that says something about the Canadian economy. Uh, it's looking very, very good. Roger Wiegand is supposed to be joining me shortly. 
I expect he will be uh, joining me very shortly. He is going to be co-hosting the show with me as we move on into uh, later into the show. Um, now, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, one of the things I want to talk to Roger about, we may not get to it until the second hour now uh, because we are going to, as I mentioned, talk to Joe Martin in just a minute or two. Uh, but um, uh, one of the topics that I saw here coming out today, it says, uh, this is from a newspaper in California. It talks about police are issuing a warning about buying and selling gold. It seems as though they're telling companies that they can't use gold, they can't buy or sell gold, and this, as I understand it, is a California law, will not allow uh, companies to buy and sell gold. Well, obviously, if you can keep people from buying and selling gold, then you can obviously um, uh, you know, keep gold from becoming a medium of exchange, uh, which I believe it would naturally be if, uh, if the government would allow the markets to, to rule and dictate uh, what people do rather than forcing them uh, under the rule of law to take paper money. But in any event, uh, a very interesting article, and I think probably in the second hour we'll talk to Roger and get his take on that. Roger also passed along to me uh, a... Um, uh, an article that says at least 10 states are going the other way. They're introducing gold coins as gold currency bills. So on the one hand, we have a very strongly statist attitude about gold, uh, trying to keep paper money as the supreme only monopoly money in the country. And then on the other hand, we have populist forces, I would guess mostly largely aligned with the Tea Party, that are looking to put gold as money to allow the markets to decide, as Congressman Ron Paul is proposing, to, to allow the markets to decide what we use as money. Uh, I understand uh, that we do have uh, Joe Martin with us and Roger Wigan with us. So what I think we're going to do now is we're going to go to commercial break, and as soon as we come back, uh, we will be talking to both Joe Martin and Roger Wigan. Uh, so don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. 
Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I was just reminded that I made a grave error. Or I forgot to, uh, to inform you who our sponsors are for the first hour of this show. And so let me do that now before we get to Joe Martin. Our sponsors for the first hour of this show are Crocodile Gold, Gold Bullion Development, Cobra Resources, Brigus Gold, and Palangio Exploration. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, welcome, Joe Martin. Hi, Jay. Good to be with you again. Good to have you here as well, and it's an extraordinarily exciting time for this sector, for the sector, the resource sector, and uh, you have, I, I, I know when I first met up with you, times were not this, not so good as this. In fact, I can remember, uh, you know, where it was kind of difficult to get enough companies around during the bear market to support the operation, the, the, uh, the excellent conferences that you put on. But now I understand you've got, uh, for your conference coming up on the 23rd and 24th, you're almost bursting at the seams. You hardly have enough room to take in all of the companies that would like to exhibit. Talk to us a little bit about your upcoming conference, Joe, well, in Vancouver. In fact, I think our, our conferences are a reflection of the markets. In reality, we are sold out. <clears throat> We're trying to squeeze a few more in on a wait list. We have about 400 uh, exhibiting companies, but these are sometimes groups where you'll have a management group with four or five or six companies. Yeah. So yeah. I believe there's probably around 600 companies exhibiting at our conference. Whoa. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the world's biggest uh, resource investment conference. Uh, so we're all excited about that. And, we, of course, you and I uh, know you've got Roger coming up here and several other people will be up here speaking with us, and we look forward to that. Um, the, the big things that I've noticed that are, that are really hot right now, I guess, in the markets is a couple of things. One, I've noticed over the past year the size of placements and financing have gone from 20 cents up to 30, 50. They're still larger ones, but mm. on the small junior, they've gone from 10, 20 down to a nickel. I see they're coming in at 40, 50, 60, 70 cents now. So there's enthusiasm back on the market. The other two key things that, that affect us that we follow, um, we have not had an area play in the world for several years, and maybe the diamond play in northern Canada years ago, but right now we have one of the most exciting gold plays going on in the world up in the Yukon Territory of Canada's far north. Uh, there are stake and plays going on up there as we speak. They cannot work there in the wintertime, but I can guarantee you next spring you will not be able to get a hotel room. You'll be sleeping in tents up there if you're in the business. <laughs> it's just, uh, I, I know, multi-million-dollar funds that have been put together and the staking going on up there. So that's one of the first world-class area plays that we've had in a long time. Of course, that drives a lot of interest to our market, and in this case, particularly to gold. 
Um, the other thing we've really noticed, which uh, is the effect of uh, China and the supply, which supplies about started as rare earth elements with about 97% of the world's uh, supply. Well, China's announced that they're going to curtail exports by 2012, and then their five-year mandate that they're reducing that by another 11%, I think, this year. Mm. Mm. Um, this was sort of brought to a head in a comical way, if you will. Um, Japan and China got involved with a fiasco. Japan boarded a Chinese fishing boat a couple months ago, <laughs> and China immediately cut off all exports of rare earth elements to Japan. <laughs> immediately, Japan catapulted in their back getting it. Rare earth elements are composite of about 17 different, I call them the yums, and you cannot have tel- cell phones, you cannot have solar energy, you cannot have any of the modern technologies without these minuscule amount of metals that uh, aren't used in great supply, pardon me, but they're just not available. Mm-hmm. So the, there's a lot of interest in those type of things. And then secondary to that is what we call critical metals. And I, I'm just, uh, you know, you often talk about uh, Congressman Ron Paul, who we greatly mm-hmm. respect. Um, you're, you've probably talked about the Dodd-Frank Act. Mm-hmm. And yeah, expl- uh, yeah, talk about that, Joe, if you would, please. Well, the Dodd-Frank Act was mostly to do with financial reorganization in the U.S., but if you go to the final pages of it, there's a clause in there that the U.S. can no longer import metals from countries they deem not to be uh, human rights and all that kind of stuff, mm. similar mm. to the blood diamonds of a few years ago. Yeah. Well, the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo is number one list that U.S manufacturers can no longer buy from metals out of that country. Mm. Well, people don't stop to think, but the DRC supplies the world with approximately 65% of its cobalt. Mm. So all of a sudden, cobalt wow. is a, a metal. Um, titanium, tantalum. Uh, China, as a matter of fact, we're putting on in advance of our upcoming show a two-day critical elements conference. We're bringing in speakers from Japan. We've got them. We even have them from China, and they're going to be talking about how China is joining the buy side. China mm-hmm. may have a lot of the rare earth elements, but they don't have lithium, and they cannot produce their electronic cars without lithium. So there's a whole host of companies running around the world looking for lithium. So these are some of the trends that we see that are very exciting that are going to be focused at our conference coming up, um, I guess, the 22nd, 23rd, 24th. And uh, we sure look forward to hearing what everybody has to say about all this. So, Joe, the, uh, this advanced conference is, is when? The 22nd? It's on uh, Saturday of the 22nd? The 22nd. That's uh, for institutional investors. What we're trying to <clears throat> excuse me, Jay, what we're doing, probably the first conference in the world to bring together a new dimension. Normally, we bring together public stock companies and investors. In mm-hmm. this case, we're bringing together end-user manufacturers who require mm. them. Uh, you can take a company that's doing, say, uh, Apple Computer, does $70 billion a year, don't think much about it. They form, they phone the purchasing department, and then they say, "We need, you know, scandium or whatever it is they happen to need, and they need, you know, uh, you know, uh, four tons of it." And it's a minor amount of expense to them in the overall, but all of a sudden they can't get it. Mm-hmm. So we're inviting the end user manufacturers to come up here, see how the process works. We have one company, for example, that we'll be presenting. They're not interested right now in individual investors. They're looking for the billion dollars that's going to be required to to uh, finance a mine, uh-huh. and we see a possibility of the uh, manufacturers trying to guarantee supply, Sure, they would buy into the um, mine development. Mm-hmm. So this is the first we see where anybody's brought that third ingredient to the table. Very interesting, Joe. Do you think this, uh, this would be of interest, though, to people who may be serious investors, individual investors, too? Can they yeah. attend that as well? Absolutely. It's a 
two-day event. It's only $495. But, yes, mm-hmm. high net worth people, sophisticated investors. Uh, there will be 30 companies presenting. We have uh, uh, the main speakers are not talking stocks. They're talking politics. They're talking world supply-demand because we're in a real situation, a supply-demand situation here. That we've got, well, our chairman is a guy you've spoken to often is, uh, is Mike Berry. Sure. And John Kaiser, of course, is probably one of the world's best strategists on understanding rare earth. But uh-huh. we've got people like um, uh, Clint Cox from the Anchor House. We've got Yako um, uh, Kurashe from the Hague Center for Strategic Studies. We've got Jack Lifton from Technical Technology Metals Research. Um, Lin Dong Lu, Secretary General of the Chinese Society of Rare Earths. Um, we have a Canadian uh, government official because we want to see where the Canadian government fits into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, um, oh, a couple of guys, people who are tracking this from a supply-demand situation. The companies will then present, and you can make your own decision. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, for investors, for this conference, we're putting a concierge service in. So if you do come to this and you would like to meet company A, B, C, or whatever, go to the concierge and they'll arrange private meetings. Mm, very nice, yeah. Joe. Uh, I should ask you for you know for the benefit of listeners that may not be familiar with Cambridge House. It's hard to believe most people are not. But uh, how can they? They can go to the website is cambridgehouse.com. dot com. That's correct. All right. So cambridgehouse.com, dot com, and you can learn all about the uh, the just conference. A, that yeah. If I can just tell you in a nutshell, the JY, your people might be interested. Approximately sixty percent of all worldwide exploration for metals that are in great supply and demand right now are done by Canadian companies. And about two-thirds of those are headquartered in Vancouver. So we're <laughs> sort of the headquarters of the world for resource exploration companies, and I guess that's maybe why our Vancouver bi- conference is so big. Bring your skis. Come on up. Take a little hop. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> well, there's, you know, I mean, it really is as close to heaven on earth as you get. In my view, Vancouver is, is certainly perhaps my favorite city in, in some ways. It's just a, a wonderful place to go to. It never gets terribly cold. You don't have to worry about the snow. We're getting ready for another 6 to 12 inches here in New York City. And uh, But the main thing, you're right, Joe, you know, you can walk within blocks of your convention center, basically, and probably get most of those companies, you know, can visit the offices. Uh, the, the companies are located right downtown there in Vancouver. It's just amazing. It really is. Uh, it's, it's an amazing city. You uh, Canadians are, and I, as I said in the introduction today, that the Canadians are the number one country for uh, for exploration development, and um, you know this, you have the geoscientists second to none. And you just backed up what I what I was saying in the introductory uh, comments. Uh, I have Roger with me, and I want to ask Roger. Roger, would you have any questions for Joe? Uh, no, I just think that uh, w- I'd like to reiterate, you know, what you and Joe were saying about the show. This is the show of of the year for the resource people. And and it's in the best place in the world because of all the things that Vancouver offers. Uh, we're we're pushing all our people in our newsletter, our traders and investors and everybody to get there if they can, and to uh, generally follow Cambridge, you know, show to show to, to stay on top of these things. Uh, Joe, what do you expect in terms of uh, attendance? How many people do you expect to show up? You know. <clears throat> Our marketing, because of the Christmas rush and New Year's, we really get our marketing going strongly right now. But historically, like last year, we had 10,000. I don't see any problem in meeting the 10,000 people. I would wow. expect that. Um, oh, by the way, I'd like you and Roger, if you can get up here, or you could be my guest at the uh, Critical Metals Conference. Oh, it'd be great. Love to. But, um, 
let me ask you, Joe, what, here's one of the complaints that I hear about, about your show or any big show. It's not your show per se. Uh, I'm an investor. I'm an individual investor. And I go in there and you say there's maybe 600 companies there. Where do I start? How do I know where to start? You know, we got bogged down. We've been trying to work on that problem. Um, unfortunately, my software developer who was doing this died. <laughs> but oh. we were trying to put together a, a profile of every company so you could plan your agenda in advance. If you're looking for potash, if you're looking for gold, if you're looking for silver, you could tick off the companies you would like to see and the speakers mm-hmm. you would like to listen to. Unfortunately, we won't have that. But my, my you know, you get a little overwhelmed by all these exhibits. Mm-hmm. But all you have to do is go in and sit and listen to the speakers who give all sorts of advice on, on that topic. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's critical that you don't just come and wander around. You sit down and listen to yourself, Roger, and the other speakers who will give you all the advice you need to. Um, we've got, you know, questions to ask and uh, things to look for. And uh, but it's critical, I think, because that's the other thing you can, uh, with respect to electronic media, you can listen to it or watch it and get advice. But it's another thing to walk in and find me, feel me, touch me, as old John Nesbitt wrote in his book years ago in Future Shock. That uh, come and listen to you, uh, Roger. You guys, I think you both have booths there to talk to, and uh, I think that's critical to come in and talk to you directly rather than yeah. listening to you on the radio, which I appreciate. But uh, every now and then, no, I'd that, like to see you in play. <laughs> that, there's no question about that, Joe. Uh, being there in person is is, uh, is is the best way to to go, and you have audio visual these days, which I think is probably the second best. But there's nothing quite like being there and looking at someone in the you know looking. At, at somebody eye to eye, the eye to eye contact, you have a better idea about who you're talking to and about the sincerity or the truthfulness. I think you at least you have a sense or a, uh, an idea of it that you might not get uh, using the other media. Well, I really want to thank you, Joe, for being with us. I'm really excited about your show. I should also mention that. Guys in Montreal as well. And uh, also, I think another big show that you have is the, mid, the mid-year show, the June one up there in Vancouver is also quite good. It's not as big as this one, I guess, but it's very, very good. Um, it seems like I just uh, lost, I got lost on my Skype connection. I'm back here on the, on the regular phone, I think. So we are ready to go to break now. Thank you, Joe, very much for being with us. It's a pleasure, Jay. We look forward to seeing you and Roger. Thanks, Joe. See you soon. This see, you, see you in a couple of weeks, folks. Will Don't do. go away because we're going to be right back. Uh, in After the commercial break, we're going to be talking to Doug Casey. You are not going to want to miss what Doug has to say. Always entertaining, always insightful, always has an awful lot of great things uh, to get you to think about. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Mr. Casey. Business Network, the bottom line in business. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. 
Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, our main guest this week is Doug Casey. Doug is a highly respected author, publisher, and professional investor who graduated from Georgetown University in 1968. His book on profiting from periods of economic turmoil, uh, titled Crisis Investing, spent multiple weeks as the number one choice on the New York Times bestseller list and was the best-selling financial book in all of 1980. Uh, he has been featured uh, a featured guest on hundreds of radio and television shows, including David Letterman, Merv Griffin, Charlie Rose, Phil Donahue, Maury Povich, NBC News and CNN, and has been the topic of numerous features in periodicals such as Times, Forbes, People, and the Washington Post. Doug, who divides his time between homes in Colorado, New Zealand, and Argentina, publishes the Casey Research uh, and has written newsletters and alert services for sophisticated investors for the past 28 years. Doug also served as a trustee on the Board of Governors of Washington College and Northwoods University and has been a director and advisor to nine different financial corporations. Welcome, Doug, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you. I, um, I'm sort of starstruck, I must say. I, I really, I'm really, uh, it's really great to have you on. We have a lot of great people on this show, and this show is really picking up in popularity. Uh, it's, growing, it's growing like weeds in the summertime, and it's because of people like you. Uh, and a lot of other good people we've had on, so it's it's really a pleasure to have you, Doug. You burst onto the hard money scene as a young man during uh, the late 1970s. I was a young guy then too. Uh, I want to ask you about your views on the tumultuous 1970s uh, compared to the current uh, economic problems that we have. But before we get to that topic, could you refresh my memory and perhaps those of our listeners 
about crisis investing. What was the major theme of that book? Well, the subtitle of the book was Profits and Opportunities During the Next Great Depression. And when I wrote that book in 1978, uh, I expected pretty much what happened in 1980 and 81 and 82, but things got better. Uh, so the depression was, uh, was forestalled, it was put off. And uh, we've, we've had uh, 30 years of, of, of boom times since, since the early 1980s. But I'm afraid what we're going into now is much, much more serious than what we almost had in the early 1980s. Uh, much, much more serious. Uh, and I don't think there's any way out of it this time. Uh, it, it, it's simply a question of cause having effect and actions having consequences. I'm not a gloom and doom kind of person. I'm an optimistic kind of person. In fact, my view of the future is that the future is not only going to be better than you can imagine, but probably better than you even can imagine, because technology keeps increasing and compounding upon itself, because there are more scientists and engineers alive today than have ever been alive in all of human history put together previously, because uh, the, the, the six billion people in the world uh, individually all want to improve themselves, and they try to produce more than they consume and save the difference, and that's how you become wealthy. So there's lots of reasons for optimism. I'm just saying this, is that uh, cyclically, uh, there are bad things that happen to the economy, mainly because of the government's intervention into the economy. And this is one of those times we're facing now. Well, it's really good to hear uh, hear your optimism, Doug, because we do have a lot of gloom and doomers. And I think maybe if you look at the short term, the cyclical uh, time frame that you're talking about, there is reason to be not to be terribly optimistic. But it's really, uh, I, you know, your enthusiasm for the future and humankind and, and uh, the ability to make things better is refreshing, to, to say the least. Getting back to your book, though, do you think that book, Crisis Investing, first of all, can people still buy it or is it available? Yes, it's available on Amazon because, of, of course, there are millions of copies of the things that were sold by um, Simon and Schuster in uh, no, it was Harper and Row actually, mm -hmm. Harper and Row in uh, hardback and pocketbooks in paper. So it, it's out there, and I would stand by that book today. Uh, the basic. Uh, explanations that I gave of why depressions happen, what causes prosperity, and what you ought to do about it uh, are as good today as they were 30 years ago. Why? Because there's a certain amount of cyclicality to the economy. Uh, so no, I'm, I'm very happy with that book. The important thing about that book is that the, um, the economic underpinnings of it, the theory in back of it, uh, was correct then and is correct now. Mm -hmm. um, well, you you just answered my question. The next question I was going to ask you, is your book timely now? Is it still, it's still in play? It still makes sense to, to read it because the same principles apply um, you know, due, to the, due to the cycles that, uh, that uh, are pronounced, I would say, and I think you'd agree with this, are significantly pronounced, those cycles, by the intervention in the economy by government. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely. Uh, you know, the thing is, is that today everybody... Uh, all over the world, but certainly in America, uh, look to the government as, as a cornucopia. They look to it as the solution for whatever problems they see out there. And in point of fact, 
uh, not only is the government not the solution to problems, it is the actual cause of all the economic problems that we have today. Uh, I think we're going into something now, Jay, that I call the Greater Depression, because it's going to be much more serious uh, than what we had in the 1930s. And I would define a depression as being a time when most people's standard of living drops significantly. And um, based upon that, based upon that definition, I would say that the depression started in 2008. Mm -hmm. And it's going to get, and right now, as we speak, if you look at this as a gigantic financial hurricane, economic hurricane, right now we're just in the eye of the storm. These governments have thrown trillions of currency units uh, at the situation to bail out failing banks, failing corporations, uh, so forth. And uh, it, it's papered things over momentarily. But I think that uh, this year, 2011, and certainly the year after, we're going to start coming out the other side of the storm, and it's going to be very, very ugly and long-lasting. Well, yeah, and that's the cyclicality. That's the pessimistic side of the view of the future that you're seeing. And what we want to get to in a little while is, you know, we want to ask you about your ideas, how we can uh, protect ourselves and our families as we go through the storm so we can come out the other side still alive and vibrant and maybe, maybe even better off than we were before. But uh, hitting on this note that you just talked about, the severity of what you think is going to be worse than the 1930s, I had a question, a couple of questions here uh, in terms of the relative severity of different, different time periods. First of all, I wanted to ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the 1970s? Uh, with 10 being the most severe and 1 being the least severe. And then I'm going to ask you that relative to the 30s, and then what's to come? Uh, that's a very good, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. And hard to answer, because uh, if we're going to take a scale of, let's say, 1 to 10, then perhaps we ought to rate 10 as the worst known depression in human history. Now, what might that okay. have been? Uh, and, and where might that have occurred? Because... Uh, the people in Russia had a catastrophic depression in between roughly, roughly 1918 and 1989. Uh, was that a 10? Or how about what the Chinese people had to go through in between 1949 and roughly 1980? Uh, how do we rate the severity of that? And, you know, here's another, I think this observation might interest you. Uh, Herman Kahn who was famous for having, oh, he, he was a futurist, but he was famous for having written several books, one called Thinking About the Unthinkable, and another one was um, On Thermonuclear War, and another one was called Uneconomic Development, World, World Economic Development, 1980 and beyond. So I got to know him before he died. And there was one observation Herman liked to make, which I think was especially astute, and that was this, the period between 1914 and 1945 was a horrible period. You had two world wars, lots of little wars, like the Spanish Civil War, among others. Uh, you had the Great Depression. Uh, it was a catastrophic period. And despite the fact it was about the worst period of time we've had, well, almost ever, uh, the world economy grew, as best as we can tell, 
at an average rate of 1.8% per year compounded wow. through two world wars mm. and the Great Depression and everything else. So wow. it's all relative, I, I guess. But having kind of given you that context, first, I think this is going to be very bad. Uh, I hate to assign a, a number to it, uh, partially because of what I've just said. But I think mm -hmm. one of the things that's going to be happening in the years to come is that these governments are all going to destroy their national currencies. Uh, the dollar is going to reach its intrinsic value, which is basic, which of course is zero. And the question zero. is, what's going to happen if and when that happens? And it's, I think it's just a question of when it's going to happen. Because uh, everybody's accounts are in dollars, their debts are in dollars, their assets are in dollars, their wages are in dollars. Uh, and if the dollar ceases to exist, in effect, it's going to overturn the entire economic and financial structure of not just the U.S., but the entire world, because all these other currencies are, are, are backed by U.S. dollars, basically. Fifty other countries around the world uh, use the U.S. dollar heavily in day-to-day -day transactions, as much as they do their own national home currencies. And of course, there are four countries in the world that use the dollar as their national currencies. So this mm -hmm. is a, this is very serious. Mm. So you're not ready to assign a, a, a relative scale, but let's say the 1970s would be child's play compared to the 1930s, and, and what you see here is more severe than the 30s, potentially. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that's right. I, I think we can say, say that very safely. I think this is going to be this, this is really going to be a, a serious earthquake. And it's not just the destruction of the currency. That's the most serious thing. But these governments are all bankrupt. And their primary directive is to maintain themselves. So they're going to be trying to raise taxes to get more money into their coffers. Uh, they're going to continue spending money. Uh, it's uh, it, it's very serious. They're going to increase regulations because people are going to want them to do something in the feudal yeah, hope yeah. that they can make things better. So um, uh, I think you're going to see immense political turmoil. And beyond that, uh, when there's political turmoil, these governments always like to blame somebody else. And it's easier to blame a foreigner. And I think you're going to see uh, a lot of military turmoil, too, uh, especially mm -hmm. on the part of the U.S., because, I mean, we, we have an absolutely bloated military, and it's like a gigantic hammer. Uh, and if you have a gigantic hammer, after a while, everything starts to look like a nail, and that's what's going on. So. <laughs> Well, Doug, that's uh, but but looking at our military, it's bloated, as you say. The U.S. is, uh, you know, I mean, we're printing money to pay for everything. Uh, will we be able to afford this bloated military, or is that thing is that military going to implode? It's, it's going to, you know, maybe we can't afford it. Is that is that wishful thinking on my part, or no? It's not. I think you're very realistic about that. Uh, the fact is, is that. When you look at all of the income of the U.S. government, uh, corporate taxes, personal income taxes, where most of it comes from, and Social Security, which is supposed to be set aside in a separate <laughs> lockbox of some type, but it's not. It's yeah. used for current operating 
uh, uh, right. expenses. Uh, there's nothing, and then you look at the expenditures, the amount they have to pay out in Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and for to do all the things that they do. And of course, the U.S. military, there's simply not enough money to go around. So what I'm saying is that uh, we're the same thing that happened to the Soviet military 20 years ago could very easily happen to the American military at this point. You know, we certainly I, had I a think, guest I, on the show. I think it will Pardon? You think it will happen? Uh, I think it's inevitable. So, I, th I think it's yeah. absolutely inevitable. The, the, nobody knows how many bases the U.S. government has around the world. There are all kinds of estimates of how many bases, depending on what size they are and this and that. But there's probably something like a thousand U.S. military bases uh, in, in the world today, and most of them are going to close. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to all those soldiers. I don't know what's going to happen to these interminable wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, well, they're going to be terminated because they're unaffordable. But I hope they don't start another yeah. war in the meantime. Maybe no. with Iran. I don't well, know who's it, on their guard next. Yeah, yeah. It's a desperate, desperate people do desperate things. Desperate governments do desperate things, I suppose. Uh, we, I, we had Lawrence Kotlikoff, who was a uh, professor of economics. Uh, he is a professor of economics at Boston University. He was on Clinton's economic team. He, he was a guest on this show not that long ago. And he talked about the present value of all of these off-balance sheet commitments of the United States government. It's something like $202 trillion going forward. Uh, just just cannot ever be paid. So they're going to try to do it, obviously, with printing press, printing press money. Doug, I'd like to get back to a, what you said earlier in the show. We talked about uh, you talked about 1980, 81. You figured we were going into a depression then. It was delayed. And I re remember very well that, uh, you know, the first house that I had, I owned, we had a 17.5% mortgage on it. Volcker came in and slammed the brakes on the monetary, on the uh, money creation, driving interest rates up. And it was the best thing that could have happened, probably. At that time, it was painful. It was the deepest recession we had since the Great Depression at that point in time. But, uh, you know, we started savings. Our savings rate went up. I think it was the highest real rate of interest, I, I remember that uh, reading, uh, since the Civil War. But what it did was cause Americans to save and stop consuming so much. And it paved the way for another couple of decades of, of considerable prosperity, although it's been, uh, you know, ruined, in my view, by the, by the enormous amount of uh, money that was created. But let me ask you this. Uh, Doug, do you, you think, uh, you know, Bernanke likes to say it's no problem uh, fighting inflation. What's the bigger problem is deflation, is that when, you know, people won't spend their money and they get scared and they just hold on to things. So his idea is that you can always fight inflation. You can just do what, what, uh, what Paul Volcker did. But I remember in uh, bringing this issue up with Ron Paul and Mark Faber at a uh, cocktail party in San Francisco three, four years ago and asking uh, both of those gentlemen, whether they thought it would be possible for a Greenspan at that time, or whoever is the Fed chairman, to come in and do, do what Volcker did in 1980, and they both said without batting an eye, absolutely not. There's no way that uh, that the Federal Reserve could ever do, do anything as bold as that. And, and of course, Volcker was invited into the uh, to the to the Obama administration, but it seemed as though he was pretty much shoved aside. Yeah, any thoughts about, uh, about there being the... Um, the the political will, or let's say the um, the intestinal fortitude on the 
the part of a Federal Reserve chairman to shut down the monetary growth and uh, usher in a correction of this system anytime, you know, anytime in the future? You think that's a possibility? I, I don't think it's possible at all. I think it's the best thing that could happen. The best thing that could happen today mm -hmm. is that there was a, if you would, a controlled demolition of the system. But nobody but it wants to be at the uh, at the rudder when you actually bring down the uh, the corrupt system that's been built up over many years. So they'll try to continue it and kick the can on down the road so it's the next guy's problem. Uh, there's nothing wrong with deflation, incidentally. All the def I'm sure you'll agree with me. Deflation that's uh, it's simply a state where your money becomes worth more. And that's a wonderful thing. It means that people want to save their money. And, and saving is how you become wealthy. It's by producing more than you consume and saving the difference. So people like um, uh, Bernanke, it's amazing to me that people have any talk, talk of him with any respect at all because uh, the, the man is a fool, uh, quite frankly. He's... he's, uh, he's He's, he's been living in castles constructed in the air for his entire life. He's never been in the real world. He's, he, he's an academic who's built his entire career on fallacious economic theories. Uh, so you can't look to this guy for the solution. In fact, one of the things that should be done is the Federal Reserve itself should be abolished. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the U.S. government should take over money. Money is what the market dictates. And historically, that's always been gold and silver for very good reasons. Uh, that's what should happen. It's not going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but it's going to be a wonder of the world to behold. I think it's going to be catastrophically ugly uh, as this thing comes apart in the years to come. I don't think, I don't think people take mm -hmm. this seriously enough. Uh, w w what it means is that... Uh, the money in your wallet no longer has value. It's going to become very hard in an advanced industrial society to buy and sell and pay for things and employ people if you don't have a proper medium exchange like money. Uh, <laughs> if the dollar if the dollar loses value, but that's what's going to happen. What? Well well, Doug, you know, you, you mentioned that you should let the markets decide and, and certainly uh, and get rid of the Federal Reserve. And Ron Paul, every single time he's uh, every, every single congressional uh, session uh, or let's say every every Congress, a new Congress, he's always introduced legislation to get rid of the Fed and the IRS. Uh, and now there's a growing movement in that direction, of course, with the Tea Party and others. I mean, it's a, people are really uh, getting sort of ticked off at the Fed. They're seeing all, you know, how they're bailing out all their friends on Wall Street and so forth. So you, you mentioned uh, not to let government do it. I'm hoping to get, I'm expecting to get Dennis, uh, Dennis Kucinich, a, uh, a liberal congressman, on this show sometime in the near future. And I'm going to have Ron Paul on it again. Uh, Dennis has proposed exactly what you're saying we shouldn't do, as I understand it. He has proposed an end the Fed legislation that would require uh, or that would hand over the reins of the printing press to the uh, to the Congress I, I would imagine that that could even be worse than the Fed any idea any thoughts on that yeah that's literally jumping uh, out of the frying pan into the fire I think Kucinich is a nutball quite frankly <laughs> I mean that's well, I've the, had a lot it's of really, it's really, a simple, it's, really a, it's really as simple as that so uh, uh, I'll, I'll be interested in, in, in tuning in and, and listening to 
to what he puts up as a, a defense for these ridiculous ideas he has. I, I'm sure he can't defend them. I don't think he understands them, quite frankly, or he certainly doesn't understand their consequences. But um, it, it's really a pity what's happened to the United States itself. Uh, and, and I don't call it America because America has ceased to exist. Uh, it was a wonderful idea, uh, America. It was a unique, a unique idea. But it's been replaced by the United States, which is just another nation state, of which there are hundreds that cover the world like a skin disease at this point. And, and we seem to be looking more and more like every other country around the world. And we're going to talk to you about various countries around the world sometime in the second hour uh, of the show, the second half hour that you're with us. Um, I, I just wonder, my, my uh, partner, Roger Wiegand, who's uh, serving as a co-host today, is with us. Roger, would you have any questions for Doug at this point? Yeah, I was, I'm curious about what uh, Doug is doing in Argentina and South America and what he could uh, tell our, our listeners about uh, currency bonds and security and opportunity in South America. I'm very interested. Okay, Roger. Well, actually, the first book that I wrote uh, before Crisis Investing was a book called The International Man, which was a guidebook to making the most of your personal freedom and financial opportunity around the world. <clears throat> and uh, that book, incidentally, became the largest selling book in the history of Rhodesia because I went to Rhodesia a number of times during the war there, and obviously it was exactly the kind of book that the Rhodesians uh, wanted to buy uh, at that time, because they were all uh, making what they called the chicken run out of Rhodesia. There were a quarter million people of European background and descent uh, in Rhodesia then. Now in Zimbabwe, there are only maybe, uh, maybe three or 4,000 of them left. They've all gone elsewhere. So I've been looking at this for... For, for many years. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, it's very clear to me at this point that the United States is really on the slippery slope. And I've been to 175 countries, and I've lived in 12 at this point. And uh, I've had to decide, well, where do I really want to make my permanent base? And I've been to all these places, I've thought about them. Uh, and I, I've ruled out Europe as being far too highly taxed, far too highly regulated, and having all of the problems that the United States does, uh, in addition to uh, immense demographic problems and um, ethnic problems with the, uh, especially Muslim immigrants from other parts of the world. So I'm afraid Europe is out. Uh, I've, I like the Orient a great deal. I've spent a lot of time in the Orient. I've lived in the Orient uh, for, for years. And I like the Orient. The problem with the Orient, although that's where the future lies, is that as a, somebody of European descent, you're never going to become part of that society, uh, which is a double-edged sword. It's not a bad thing. Uh, you can be a foreign ghost and you're left alone. But I prefer to have the option open to me. Uh, Africa is entirely too problematical. South America is where the future lies. And I've looked at all the South American countries, and it came down to Argentina, frankly. Argentina uh, is a, a huge country. It has a small population. Most of that population is centered around Buenos Aires. And uh, it, uh, it's had a lot of economic problems, especially since Juan Perón in the 50s. But um, uh, one of the 
I always try to look at the bright side. And one of the bright sides of this is that there's no debt in Argentina. So that the prices in Argentina are low. And because they're not propped up by a mountain of debt, they're real. And there's actually a chance that Argentina is going to start acting intelligently in the future. And even if it doesn't start intelligent, acting intelligently in the future, it doesn't bother me because the government leaves you alone here, unlike the U.S. government. So I can talk a lot more about it, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, that's... Uh, that's well, I, I think that's... Uh, that's, that's pretty interesting, Doug. I just, Roger, uh, we're going to... I, I think that, uh, it, you know, Argentina, you know, there was a big population move there by, I think, the Germans after or during or after World War II, and uh, they liked it. They stayed there. Right. No, there's uh, All right. it's, a, it's, it's it, it, Argentina is actually the most European country in the world from a demographic point of view. It's more European than any country in Europe at this point, quite surprisingly. And the standard of living uh, in Argentina is extraordinarily well, yeah, high. You know, so it's, it's rather amazing. As, as, as stupid as their government has been and as much damage as it's done, uh, it, it's a fantastic place. And if you're an American, you'll double your standard of living down here. And you'll increase your, the opportunities available to you by a factor of four, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's uh, it's a great place okay. to be. Okay, Doug. Uh, Doug, we're going, we're going to ask you a little bit more about Argentina in the second hour. We've got to go to a commercial break right now. When we come back, I want to ask you about that and uh, also uh, Uruguay, which you're talking to us from today. So we'll be right back with Doug Casey. Don't go away. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the 
business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, and, of course, who has really made this show a spectacular success are people like Doug Casey, who's with us today, and many other very, very interesting people we've had on our show. I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second half of today's show uh, uh, for sponsoring this and making this show economically viable. They are Crocodile Gold, Gold Bullion Development, Athabasca Uranium, Golden Minerals, and Western Pacific. Well, Doug, uh, before we left, we talked a little bit about and, and your view, and certainly mine as well, that we'd be much better off if they stopped printing money, if the government stopped doing anything, if they just 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 stopped doing anything and just uh, went home, if we didn't have a government at all, almost you might say, in some ways, if we would just let the markets decide and stop increasing the money supply, we would have a very, very quick, fast, and furious deflation. I think the economic wheels would fall off. But then, uh, as in the 1980s, uh, 1980 or so, 81 and 82, uh, you know, the, the bad debts, uh, the, a lot of that stuff was cleared out, and we went on to some uh, substantial growth for a while again. Um, there are some people uh, that we've had on this show. Ian Gordon would be one. Uh, Robert Prechter's been on this show, and I, and I believe if he were still with us, the late John Exter would also be of this opinion that in spite of all the money that's being created, uh, the attempts by Bernanke to to overcome the natural deflationary forces that would occur if they just took their mitts off the economy, that in spite of this enormous amount of printing of money, uh, since since fiat money is actually uh, created with debt, it's debt money, it's liability money, unlike gold, which is an asset money, is intrinsic value. We have in the I like to say that debt uh, is the raw material from which money is created. So if you look at what's happening, debt is growing much more rapidly in the United States than income is growing. And it's actually growing exponentially. And uh, and so the argument that we get from people like Ian Gordon, uh, I think Robert Rector as well, perhaps uh, Exter, is that, um, is, is that the forces of deflation will ultimately overcome, overwhelm uh, the printing presses. Uh, but I don't believe you agree with that. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I understand the argument, and it's uh, it, it's a, a rational argument that's worthy uh, of, of discussion. But I, I, I don't think that we're likely to have a deflation because any time that uh, the potential for a deflation comes up, for instance, uh, the collapse of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they were bailed out so that. They weren't allowed to default on their debts, which it would have brought down the banking system. Uh, General Motors and Chrysler, uh, 
they were bailed out so that those debts couldn't be defaulted on, or, or not all of them could be defaulted on. All of the banks uh, that um, uh, in the U.S., nobody's going to lose a dollar uh, depositing money in a U.S. bank because uh, uh, the, the Fed's going to print it up. They're not going to let a banking collapse happen, and they can do that. They actually can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and any, anything that's big enough to make a difference, too big to fail, in other words, will be bailed out. So the, I, I think they can effectively stop a deflation from happening. Uh, meanwhile, they're mm-hmm. going to be creating trillions more dollars. Uh, I, I think we're much like, more likely to, to, to wind up in a, a situation that, that approaches that of Zimbabwe uh, a few years ago. Now, mm. uh, anything, anything oh, that... is possible, of course, but uh, I don't think it's the way to bet. Well, certainly, uh, Ron Paul agrees with you. I think most people that, that are free market people believe that what you're saying is right. And I would guess that, uh, you know, we, we have this, uh, gosh, I'm having this. Um, Okay, so uh, what I was going to say is, okay, so Ron Paul is suggesting, and he suggested in this show, that they have the wherewithal to channel money into the masses. And one, of the, one of the things I see, Doug, that's happening so far is all of this quantitative easing. The money's pumped into the banking system. The banks aren't lending it out because they can't find creditworthy borrowers for the most part, but they are speculating with it. It's going through hedge funds and the like, and we're seeing a rise in commodity prices, energy and food prices, which actually make it more difficult, I would argue, for the common folks. I think this this is part of the decline in the living standards that you're talking about is sort of broad-based. There are certain people, of course, that are doing quite well. Wall Street is doing quite well. It gets bailed out when it makes mistakes. Uh, you know, living in New York City, we all sort of benefit from the fact that the rest of the country is, uh, you know, the parasites are taking what's left of the wealth of America and, and pulling it to New York and the, among the financial centers. Uh, but um, uh, so, I, so I suppose that what you need, do you think, though, that what needs to be done, and do you think this will be done, it might be sort of a massive uh, channeling of, of printing press money to the masses through the tax code or other, otherwise? Well, of course, they are doing that now. As you know, there are almost 45 million uh, Americans that are getting food stamps from the government right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a, a direct uh, aid to, to these people. You've got many more that are getting their medical bills paid and many more that are getting Social Security checks. The government's going to keep printing up money to, to do that uh, but it, it, it's because of this immense state intervention in a very unstable economy. It makes it very hard to save in terms of dollars because the dollars are going to lose value mm-hmm. rapidly. It makes it very hard to invest, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say uh, allocate dollars to, to, to create more wealth because uh, almost anything can go wrong when you invest today. So I think what we're entering into is the world of the speculator. Uh, where mm-hmm. and a speculator is not a gambler and he's not a trader, but he's somebody that tries to capitalize on politically caused distortions in the marketplace. And, of course, one of the most ideal speculations in our lifetimes was buying gold in 1970 when it was controlled mm-hmm. by the government at $35 an ounce. Well, you know what's happened since then. So... What you've got to do is try to find out 
with the trillions of currency units governments around the world are creating, where are those trillions of currency units likely to go? And I think they're going to ignite other bubbles in the economy. Uh, and I think one of the bubbles is going to wind up being ignited in gold and silver. I think that uh, gold and silver will, in the next generation, once again be used as day-to-day -day money in commerce. Now, what, whether that's is computer blips or gold and silver on credit cards, uh, but it'll be the numeraire, no longer uh, fiat money. But um, I think in, be, in, in between now and then, there's likely to be a bubble ignited in gold and silver. And it could be there's a bubble ignited in the stock market, although I don't feel as good about that because stocks are generally overpriced. But I think one thing that you covered, Jay, and I do too, of course, is it, it's very likely that there's going to be a bubble in these junior gold and silver mining stocks because it combines, mm -hmm. I, think, I, I think there could be billions and billions that flow into them. And uh, mm -hmm. these things, as you know, they, they don't just go up 10 or 20% in a bull market. They go up 10 or 20 times in a bull mm -hmm. market. And so I, that's one thing that I think uh, is an, a very good speculation at this point. Well, the, uh, th that's right. A lot like the Internet stocks, I suppose, uh, you know, of a couple of a decade or so ago. Uh, George Soros says we're already in a, uh, a bubble for gold, and, and yet he's uh, reportedly buying more of it. What do you think, uh, where do you think he's coming from, and do you think we're in a bubble yet? Or how, at what stage are we in this bull market? For uh, gold? We're not in a bubble yet. Uh, this, this bull market in gold started out in about the year 2000, where nobody even know, knew gold existed. They were writing books, making fun of it. Uh, <laughs> And that's, of course, that was the bottom of the market. And uh, bull markets generally have three stages. The first is the stealth stage, where the market goes up, but nobody knows and nobody cares. And then there's the wall of worry stage, which in the case of gold started around uh, 2005. And this is where all people recognize that it's done pretty well, but people are, but the bulls and the bears are fighting with each other. And uh, it's very worrisome. I think we have not, by any means, entered the mania stage where it goes parabolic and people buy it out of fear and greed. And they'll also buy gold out of prudence. But um, no, no, we're not in a bubble yet. That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know what world people are living in if they think gold is in a bubble. I, they, they don't understand it. I would say Soros doesn't really understand gold, but he's a smart speculator, and he can see that he can make money on it, but he's, <clears throat> he's buying it just, just to increase his wealth, I suppose. Well, that's, of course, a good enough reason, but he doesn't understand where it fits into the economy, because the things that he's written on economics are just complete nonsense. As smart as he is, and as good a speculator as he is, it doesn't mean that he understands economics, and he doesn't. No. Well, certainly the wall of worry, Doug, it makes sense to me because one of the things I hear from people who are not, uh, who, who are not uh, into going, buying gold or haven't followed gold, don't understand gold is, well, it's gone up so much already, it's too late, isn't it? And that's, uh, I think, that wall of worry that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, the mania won't be here in, until uh, our mothers ask us where they can buy gold. 
and the man in the street is lined up at coin stores and things like that. We're a long way from that. We did see some of that in 1980, I think, in New York City. I can remember there were lines of people, you know, people that knew nothing about gold wanting to buy it. So, so I think we're, 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 there's a lot of time to make a lot of money yet in this business, you think, in, this, in, this, uh, in the junior mining shares. Doug, is that where you would suggest that people should go primarily? Or should they start by owning some gold bullion and silver? Yeah, they should definitely start by owning the, the gold coins and bullion and, and keep them in their own possession. And secondarily, uh, if you're going to own more than just a little bit in your own possession, uh, store them outside your native country. Uh, for most of your listeners, I pr presume that's the U.S. But your biggest risk in the world today is actually not a market risk. It's political risk. It's what the government's going to do to you. Uh, and, it, it, of course, it's time to eat the rich. So if, if you have any assets at all, uh, you're who they're targeting. So you've got to diversify your wealth outside of your home country. That's important. And then the next stage is to uh, start learning about these, these stocks because there, there are several thousand of them. Most of them are garbage, of course. But uh, some of them are uh, well run. They're looking for the metals. They have competent management, and they'll find it. And it's, but, but even the garbage during bull markets and these things can go 100 to 1. Yeah. Uh, so uh, well, we I, I think it's an ex I think it's an excellent place. People ought to start finding out about it now, and starting to dip their toes in the water at least. Doug, this may be a good a good time then for you to tell people where they can go to avail themselves to your newsletter, which covers that. What, where should they? What's the website they should go to? Well, we have two. One is called caseyresearch.com, and we have a number of free publications there, including the one that I do every week. So you can sign up there for free at caseyresearch.com or, or go to dougcasey.com, which leads you to the same place. And uh, just sign up for a free publication and see if you like that well enough to go for the more advanced ones. Sure. Excellent idea. I know that you've been following this sector for many, many years. and. Uh, and you have a team of people who, who are very smart that are out there, in many cases, visiting the projects and talking uh, and learning a lot about it, uh, about the companies, the projects. And I know your people do an excellent job, so I think people would do very well to uh, uh, to check out Doug's work and his team's work. Uh, Roger, would you have any more any any question for Doug at this point in time? Well, you yeah, we've Doug's got a really busy year coming up here in 2011, <laughs> and I would be curious what Doug thinks about the markets. Uh, for the first half and second half of the year, I think we're pretty happy for the first five, six months, and the second half, to me, is getting pretty scary. Well, that's reasonable. I think gold is going to go higher this year. I, 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 would, be, uh, I would expect that gold could easily hit 2000 in 2011, and then the, and then the uh, mania starts, and it goes parabolic in 2012. So I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I, I'm, I'm a little bit chagrined about the fact that I expect things to get really out of control in 2012 because there are all these Looney Tunes types out there that think they know something about the Mayan calendar and think the world is going to come to an end. So it, I, I, I really feel rather sheepish about picking that year for that reason. 
<laughs> well, uh, that's interesting, Doug. I know that our <clears throat> Chen Lin, who is a, a brilliant investor, is a partner of mine, <clears throat> and he's on this show a lot, is, is also thinks that 2012 will be a good year for commodities in general. This year, he, he's very bullish, but he thinks 2013 is a year in which we could see a real devastating implosion. But So you think 2012, we see a parabolic move in gold, and, and you think that's when we might get something like hyperinflation in the economy in general? I think that's I think that's when it's really going to start falling apart in earnest. Yes, so now is still an excellent time to position yourself, uh, which means uh, put most of your savings in gold and silver. I'm sorry, but silver is at thirty dollars and gold is at close to fourteen hundred dollars because uh, they're not cheap anymore. But then again, there's nothing in the whole world that's cheap at this point because of these trillions of currency units that they're printing up. So, uh, yes, now's the time to, to buy the metals. Now's the time to diversify your assets internationally. Very important point that most people overlook. And, uh, and now is when you should start looking for speculative opportunities because uh, saving and investing in, in their conventional forms is going to become very hard. So you're going to be forced to be a speculator in the years to come. But I've got, some, I've got some more good news. And the good news is that most of the real wealth in the world is still going to exist, no matter how bad the financial markets become. So mm -hmm. it's just going to change ownership. So this is a, an opportunity to, to be on the receiving end of that transaction. Well, I think that's right, Doug. And what we're going to see, in my view, is that, you know, it's not, you know, people say gold is going up. I would argue that it's not gold going up so much as it's paper going down. That is, paper is being debased. Paper money is being debased so rapidly that, in fact, the people then that have the gold, you said there's going to be a transfer of wealth. Wealth isn't going to go away. It's going to be transferred to the people that have the gold. Now, you said it's time to eat the rich, right? We're seeing the. Oh, I didn't say that. But, that have but that's, but that's, no, what, no, but that's I mean, what a. A certain class of people feel, yes. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. I know you're not saying that, Doug. So uh, what happens, and this brings me to, I think, one of the most important questions at this time, is what happens to those of us who had the insight to buy gold at $300 and who are sitting on a fair amount of it, and all of a sudden we have wealth and the people that played within the system don't have it. Are we not going to be targeted? either through the tax code or just outright confiscation? Do you think that's likely in the United States, let's say? Yeah, no, it's very likely. And this is why I said you've got to diversify politically so that all your eggs aren't in one political basket because your main danger is political, just what you were just talking about. So you have to diversify internationally. I'm going to see you down here in Argentina in, in March, am I not, Jay? Well, I hope so. If I can get Mrs. Taylor to let me out of the house long enough, I suppose, and she'll come with well, me. She then, will, I guess I well, she will. Well, I would suggest you take her along, and I, I can promise her a most enjoyable interlude. Okay. Well, we look forward to that. That'll be a lot of fun, Doug. That's for sure. But now, um, it, Argentina. Let's talk about Argentina a little bit more because I know you have a project down there, the one I want to go visit, the one you're just talking about. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing down in Argentina. And then also, uh, it's my understanding, your view is that you, well, you said a little while ago, you said Argentina is the place, probably the safest place in your view, after you've done all this research, lived in a hundred, lived in a, visited 175 countries, lived in 12 of them, that you 
you more than most people have, have sort of scoped out the world scene and you have a better idea certainly than I have. I've been to a half a dozen countries perhaps in my life and I've only lived in one uh, for any length of time. So um, <clears throat> why Argentina? Tell us first of all why Argentina? Why is that place? Why does that look better? We had we had an economist from Argentina named Adrian Salbucci who grew up in the United States. He's been on the show a couple of times. Adrian believes that, that much of Argentina's problems have been sort of imposed on it by outside forces, you know, by, by the ruling, the, the global ruling elite, the, let's say, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, and the, the sort of the powers behind the throne in the global scene. But uh, I, I don't know that Adrian would think Argentina is not the least worst place to live necessarily. But anyway, can you tell us why Argentina? What do you see about Argentina that makes it such a, a good place to go? And then maybe you can talk more specifically about your project and the part of Argentina where your project is. Sure. Well, to start with, uh, any Argentine with any sense at all has most of his money outside of Argentina. I mean, that's rule number one. Just like any American with any sense at all at this point is going to have most of his money outside the U.S. And the reason for that is because the government of the U.S. is doing exactly the same kind of thing that, that got Argentina into all the trouble that it has gotten into over the last 60 years. So that, that's quite correct. But for a foreigner who's living in Argentina, uh, one of the nice things about Argentina is that uh, although the government's extremely stupid, it's also extremely ineffectual. Uh, the average guy has no respect for it. Uh, the average guy doesn't believe in paying taxes. The average guy doesn't like the police. He doesn't like the army. Uh, and he doesn't like the tax authorities. And they're very ineffectual. Uh, they basically leave you alone, certainly if you're a tourist, as opposed to a citizen resident. So uh, it's a, that's very good. Culturally, the place is fantastic. Uh, just a wonderful place to hang out. Uh, it's very advanced technologically. And where I am is in the northwest of Argentina, which is kind of like a combination of Taos, New Mexico, uh, and Napa, Sonoma, California. It's the middle of a grape-growing region. So uh, what we've done is we've built a resort there, which has absolutely everything that a civilized person could possibly want, next to a fantastic Aspen-like little town. Uh, we've got everything from a championship 18-hole golf course to polo fields to 40 kilometers of riding, biking, jogging trails, horses, wine, uh, a social clubhouse with a billiards room, a fantastic gym and spa, uh, and about 50 other things. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's probably, in terms of uh, everything that you might want to live and enjoy yourself, uh, about the best place in the world. And I, I, from the point of the physical facilities, to the area, to the climate, so it's just a fantastic place to be. I don't understand why most people live where they live. Well, if they've got to work and, and yeah. so forth, and a place, that's, that's one thing. But if you're in a position that you can diversify yourself and get a vacation home abroad, or you can actually move and live someplace better, uh, I'd suggest this is it. So if people want to look at it, they can go to, they can, there's a website, they can go to uh, 
it's called La Estancia de Cafajate, but it's easier just to go to a website, which is uh, L-A-E-S-T, laest.com, and take a look. Sounds really, really good, Doug. I have gone there and I've looked at it, and it just looks absolutely beautiful, and I can't wait to get down there and see it. Uh, do you, in terms of, so you have properties for sale, like the, the people can go down there and live down, they can buy a, a house with some ground around it, some, some acreage? Yes, absolutely. it's a very international community. We have uh, on the, uh, on the uh, 1,300 acres that we have right on the edge of this fantastic little town, we have 360 lots, and uh, so far about 170 have already been sold. It's a new project. We've only been started it from green green fields four years ago, mm. and buyers have come from 16 different countries, which I think is pretty impressive. It's a very international, very sophisticated community with uh, the kind of people that um, I've lived in Aspen, Colorado for years, and I'm rather disenchanted with that town and a lot of my neighbors, but uh, the kind of people that are drawn to this development, to this place, are the kind of people that you'd probably want to spend time with. And, uh mm -hmm play a game of chess with, or a game of bridge with, or a game of poker with down at the clubhouse. Very interesting. Uh, Doug, how are the uh, the real estate prices down there compared to, say, in Aspen? Oh, I would say for the same thing, about 10% oh, is that right? of what you'd pay in Aspen. Uh -huh. Yeah, about 10%. Yeah, uh, that, that would be about correct for Aspen. But you've got to remember that Aspen is very, very expensive, even though prices are coming down there. But prices yeah. are going up in Argentina while they're coming down in Aspen. But still, it's about a 10 to 1 spread for a comparable thing, I would say, yeah. That's, uh, that's uh, rather amazing, I would say. Although it's more expensive to eat in a restaurant in Argentina now than it was even a few years ago because the government down here is playing with the currency and prices. Uh, but still, I would say you can get a comparable meal for it's about a third of what you would in the U.S. still. Is, is that good. right? Huh. I would say it's still accurate. It used to be, it used to be a lot less than that, but it's, a third is still pretty good. What, what's not to like about that? I, I, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to visiting down there, Doug. I really am, and I, perhaps some of our listeners will check out your site as well, lest.com. Doug, uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to just ask you about uranium. Uh, we talk about yellow, uh, the, you know, the yellow metal, gold, but there's that other yellow metal, uranium. Uh, we're going to have coming on with us uh, Mira Nani in a few minutes after the break. Uh, uranium Energy figures to be the next uranium producer in the United States going into production later this year. Do you have any thoughts on uranium? Are you bullish on uranium? I am bullish. Uh, I like Amir uh, Nani personally very much. He's a very competent guy. He's a member of our Explorers League, incidentally. Oh, and, he was uh, aware. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is. He's a very, very competent guy. And uh, uh, I've got to say that uranium is by far the safest, the cheapest, and the cleanest type of mass power generation uh, that's available. And that'll be the case for at least another generation. Uh, so I'm a huge bull on, uh, on, on uranium and nuclear power generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just ask you, relative to gold, uh, you like you more bullish on silver than gold at this point in time? I, I think I am more bullish on silver than gold, yes. And, and the reason is that uh, the historical ratios between various commodities are, are, 
are unreliable as predictive things, but uh, silver is relatively quite cheap to gold. It's kind of the poor man's gold. Uh, and from a, not that it's not that industrial usage of either gold or silver is really important because they're really money first and mm -hmm. foremost. But um, yes, I, I, and it's a much smaller market than gold is. And a small market means it's a more volatile market. And when, mark, when you're in a bull market, volatility is a good thing because it will be volatile on the upside. So, yeah, I would tend to, given a choice between the two, I'd, I'd still go for silver over gold, although you've got to own both. Uh, very interesting, Doug. I uh, don't know. Is there anything else you might want to just say uh, before we part company this time? Uh, any, any other final ideas or, or thoughts you might want to leave with our listeners? Uh, well, I just tell them to hold on to their hats because it's going to be a thing to behold over the next few years. And I'll be in touch with you and I'll see you in a couple of months uh, down here uh, down here in Argentina, Jay. Well, look forward to it, Doug, and maybe we do a radio show from down there, which we could do, and, and have you and, and some other people on the show. It would be great. Thank you so much, Doug, for coming on with us. It's been a pleasure. You're always insightful, entertaining, uh, thought-provoking, and, um, oh, I just, just wanted to say, you, you had, this is just a final thought here. You mentioned that the Argentinians don't have that much respect for their government. They don't uh, trust them. Uh, I think that's not true in the U.S. yet. I think for the most part, although we're seeing the Tea Party movement, the U American people um, basically believe what they see on television and what they hear from, from Bernanke. Is that remarkable yes. or what? Oh, and, and, but, that's, but, that, but you see that as a strength of Argentina, the fact that the people – and, and uh, you know, we had a guest here that talked to – from Russia. He looked at the Russian situation, believes that we're following the same path as the Russians, and he talked about how our propaganda machine in the U.S. is so superior to anything they had in Russia – uh, it, because because of that, he said the people in Russia they they knew that the Communist Party was you know they were liars, uh, but here we believe our government. Do you think that's uh, an observation you would make of Americans? Totally, uh, in all regards. The only the only when I listen to to television news or when I read the paper, it's for entertainment pur purposes only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good parting thought, Doug. Thank you so much for being with us. We do have to go to our commercial break now. Uh, folks, again, uh, check out Doug's work. Uh, it's excellent. His team is excellent. Uh, Doug has been around for, for quite a while, as have I, and has seen a lot. But he's seen a lot more than I have. He's been around the world. Uh, lots of good insights from Doug Casey. Thank you very much, Doug. Folks, don't go away. We're going to have Amir and Nanny with us right after the break. So don't go away. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com sign up for jay's newsletter jay taylor's gold energy and tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com now back to our program welcome back to turning hard times into good times we were supposed to have uh, amir adnani with him with us here uh he is not yet connected to us hopefully we'll get in touch with him meantime though i'm, I'm very pleased to say that roger Wiegand, my partner is with me uh and roger i don't know if you, any any comments on what doug had to say anything you might want to add or uh, or comment on, on some of Doug's observations. Well, I think generally I agree with most all that he says. You know, this this age-old argument that we've had regarding inflation-deflation uh, goes back and forth but among our group. But, I, you know, Doug made the point that uh, the government and the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury and the central bankers, and plus the people in New York, I call them the cabal, the gang, they pretty much can... Uh, mess around with these markets to the extent if something's going to fall apart, they can jump in and fix it up. Now, one point I would like to make today is Portugal, and you know Portugal, uh, they're going to have a major uh, bond offering tomorrow at 7%, and in anticipation of that, yesterday, uh, some of the values on previous uh, credit bonds uh, were, were going the wrong way, so the European Central Bank jumped in and propped it up. 
But this bond offering tomorrow is going to be very interesting. Uh, the Portugal Bank has suggested that uh, they don't need the money, which means they really do, uh, but they're trying to be reluctant because they want this thing sold out. But uh, I think that the, the investors who are going to intentionally buy this stuff have been getting very skittish lately and very worried, and they will know pretty much in advance if it's going to get sold or not. And if it's not sold and they did make the offering, I think they'd have a big mess in the make in the markets in Europe. I think you could have a real big problem all of a sudden, real quick. Mm-hmm. Now, China, China did say, Jay, that they were going to come in and they would try to help out. Uh, does that mean they would buy some or buy all of the offering or whatever? Uh, that remains to be seen, but I think this is a key event tomorrow. Oh, very interesting. So we'll keep our eyes on that. Uh, if uh, if it is, yeah, I, you know, I think uh, Chen Lin has certainly made the point everybody is more or less aware of it, that China doesn't want to pull the rug out from underneath the U.S. dollar. It owns so many of them. But here's the thing, and here's why I think China ultimately might pull the rug out. They have, what, $2.7 trillion of reserves or something like that. Not all in dollars, but $2.7 trillion, something like that, I believe, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. Bernanke can go out overnight with a couple of uh, keystrokes of the computer and create $2.7 trillion out of thin air. And the Chinese are saying, wait a minute. What are you doing? I mean, this isn't fair. We've worked. We've sent you things of value over the years, and we've built up this, you know, by by working and 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 creating manufactured goods. And you folks have been buying it and and giving us pieces of paper in exchange. Now you're all of a sudden going to make those pieces of paper totally worthless. And so, you know, to me, Roger, this is something that could really provoke international tensions and and even a war sometime. What do you think? Oh, I would agree with that. I mean, there's two sides of the coin on that one. Um, they're, the Chinese are very smart traders and investors. I think, actually, they've managed uh, the inflation that they've got and some of the other problems that they have today, which are comparable to some in the United States. I think they have managed them better, but they've got to deal with the U.S. and they've got to deal with the uh, world system. And Japan has also got major problems, just like Europe. And and last week we noticed that there were some uh, remarks coming out of uh, Japan indicating that uh, things could be a lot worse there than they are even in Europe, if in fact we could manage, uh, we can imagine that. So what China's trying to do here is walk the tightrope in the middle. They want to keep their economy going. They want to keep a lid on inflation. They want to keep international trade moving. They have no interest in knocking down the U.S. And, and Europe because that is their customer base. And there's 850 million people in Europe, and I think that's one of the key reasons why they're trying to prevent a disaster like uh, potentially could happen tomorrow in Portugal. And mm-hmm. then beyond Portugal comes Spain, and beyond Spain, then what? So uh, all these central bankers and heads of nations are running around trying to keep a lid on this thing and keep it corralled, and it's uh, the dust-up is getting increasingly more difficult. Uh, Roger, changing topics just a bit here. Uh, we were talking to Doug. Of course, he, he talked about the, the fears of, of confiscation of gold, of uh, you know political unrest and, and difficulties that might arise when the uh, you know when the system comes tumbling down. Uh, an article that uh, you or somebody sent to me earlier today is very very interesting. Uh, we you and I talked about it a little bit. It's uh, 
Pasadena police are saying that you can't use gold. You can't you can't buy and sell gold. Businesses can't buy and sell gold uh, unless they have a license. Do you know anything about this story? Well, I know a little bit about it, in that somebody out there's got uh, uh, got a great concern that, in fact, perhaps their budgets are going awry, and and someone may have suggested that they would like to introduce a new bill, as they have in ten states recently, to uh, use gold and silver in commerce. And we mentioned, I think, on the radio last week that there was a, uh, either a small town or a legislator in Georgia who also introduced something similar. So, you know, people are beginning to understand the U.S. dollar is a fiat dollar, and we've got some real problems with it, and that more and more the value is gravitating toward precious metals, specifically gold and silver coins. And I think there's fear out there by the authorities that if this starts to get heavy and go the wrong way, they could find themselves in a world of hurt. Now, it's interesting, too, to note that Little Wallace, Idaho, which you're familiar with because Hecla Mining is there, and it's a big silver town. I say a small town, but big in silver. Uh, they, they trade locally in silver rounds, which are not necessarily American currency, although they use silver American currency, too. And it's passed back and forth in that town for trade. And we're seeing it spreading everywhere, I mean, not just in small towns like Wallace, but they're selling gold in 7-Eleven in Tokyo now. Uh, China is number two in gold production, if not number one. Uh, And the interesting thing is they're not selling any. They're producing as fast as they can. They're taking the uh, paper from America and going worldwide to buy mines, buy gold supply, buy silver supply. And and, and it's it's spreading as a... a, uh, uh, to replace the fiat currency, even mm-hmm. in the as a fiat currency would be in China, the the uh, YUAN. Yeah, well, that's that's very interesting. Uh, certainly, that's what the Chinese have been doing, and I, it is my understanding, Roger, that China is the number one gold producer in the world now. So we are we're looking at um, China basically. You know, in a way, the markets are forcing. Uh, gold to become money again. You had mentioned uh, that there are, I think, something like ten states that are that are um, at least there's a movement in ten states among some lawmakers to or legislation that's being introduced to uh, to uh, have gold and silver as money again. Can you talk about that for, for that, a second? That's true. Uh, the 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 thing we mentioned, so I think, originated in the Southwest in Georgia. But some of the lawmakers in, in other states, like uh, the ones I see in front of me on the list, are Montana, Missouri, Colorado, Idaho, Indiana, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Utah, and Washington, my own state. And all of these states have proposed legislation. Most of it went into the hopper last year so that it would include gold and silver in its accepted currency forms. In other words, they want people uh, within those states to be able to trade using state commerce, conducted in gold and silver. And the big fear, of course, the central bankers have is that the more we go in that direction, uh, the less the value of their fiat paper money, which they really need to, to run their program. Well, so I see uh, in the news, uh, in these two movements, on the one hand, the California Pasadena police are reminding people that they better not buy and sell gold. Uh, you know, that is a statist 
um, movement. That is the the government, uh, the status quo, the uh, the establishment, essentially saying, no, 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 you must use paper. We're not going to allow you to use in, uh, uh, gold as a medium of exchange. Uh, you know, which is the natural thing for people to use. The reason people have used gold, I mean, there's several reasons, but. But gold and silver work best as money because of their properties. They they have the intrinsic value, and you know if you're going to you, you know if you were to barter, you want to have something that you can store value in because I may you know write a newsletter for somebody and charge X amount of money and they give me paper money. But if that paper money a year from now when I need to spend it isn't worth anything. Well, if I have gold, we know that gold is going to be worth something because it has intrinsic value. So that's definitely what's going on. Uh, people are starting to wake up to the fact that they're being lied to. As Doug, I thought it was really interesting. Doug really agreed with um, Dmitry Orlov, who was a, a guest of ours in the past here on the show. Dmitry talked about how Americans believe everything they see on television uh, and, and here in the media. Uh, basically, uh, whereas the Russians didn't, and and it was interesting that Doug was saying that the Argentines actually, you know, they don't they don't really they don't really believe their government's that credible. They basically are are skeptical of the government. Uh, and I think what's happening here, Roger, with the Tea Party movement and all, is that there's a growing amount of skepticism uh, in the U.S. And so what you're seeing is this movement on the part of lawmakers in these ten states to introduce legislation. But let's be clear about this: an introduction of legislation is only an introduction. What do you think the chances are of actually seeing a law passed in any of these states that say, now you can actually use gold and silver uh, as a medium of exchange? Because here's the reason I'm very skeptical about that. The states do that. I think the federal government steps in and says, no, 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 you can't do that. And they'll use the power of the federal government to try to suppress it. What do you think? Well, I would agree with that. I mean, if you go to the U.S. Mint right now and you buy a silver coin or a gold coin, I mean, that's currency of the realm, and that's spendable money. And if these people in certain states or wherever they are, like the Pasadena police, are saying that that's not gold and you can't use it to trade, I think they might end up in federal court. Yeah. Well, that's that's the issue. Uh, but but people can still buy gold now. And, you know, Doug is suggesting if you're able to diversify your holdings and have it outside the country, that's one possibility. I know one, one way that people could... Uh, possibly do that is to buy gold money, uh, goldmoney.com. That's uh, James Turk, our friend who's been a guest on this on this show in the past, uh, has a patent uh, for gold money. It's several patents actually, and um, uh, and and the gold is stored in uh, in Switzerland and in uh, uh, and in England, I think, uh, on, in private uh, private vaults and uh, thoroughly uh, documented and audited on a regular basis. Uh, and so that might be one way that people can get some diversification. I think they may be looking to move uh, into the uh, into the Orient somewhere as well with some of their storage. Well, Roger, uh, let's look at, uh, you mentioned Portugal. Um, U.S. municipal bond market. You know, Meredith Whitney was on recently, was on the, uh, was on 60 Minutes, I guess, actually, and uh, was talking about the the horrible condition of the municipal government's finances um, so where do you think where do you think this is going to go you know you have at the same time we hear uh, I don't know if it's some some organization that is to support municipal municipal bond markets uh, came out and was trying to reassure the people that uh, that these bonds are safe that they're that they're insured and this and that um, what are what are your thoughts on the bond market well, on the municipal bond market 
keep in mind that uh, not too long ago, uh, they, uh, the government, the American government, off these Buy America bonds, uh, which were uh, supportive of municipal finance to the extent that, uh, let's say that the uh, state of California wanted to come with a big op- bond offering and the, uh, the supposed investors were a little bit skittish, if, uh, if the federal government was behind it with the Bond America, Buy America bond program, uh, that made it easier to sell and gave them the confidence to go ahead and make the investment. Personally, I think that Meredith Whitney is brilliant. I think she's absolutely correct. Uh, we've already seen municipal failures. There have been small towns in California that have gone bankrupt. And not only that, there was a small town in Alabama that not only went bankrupt, Jay, but they stopped making, they suspended payments on pensions that were due to former employees that were retired. Now, that's getting really serious. That's mm-hmm. not only a default on your bonds, but that's a default on your payroll and your pension mm-hmm. plans. Mm-hmm. And speaking of pension plans, uh, Speaker Pelosi, ex-Speaker Pelosi, has long had her eye upon the pension pot. I call it the honey pot with $68 trillion in it in the U.S., and it's the last big piggy bank that the federal government may in fact go after. And we did mention some years ago that... We were thinking that when things really got tight enough, and I think they're getting pretty tight, uh, what could happen here is that Congress might pass some new rules and uh, put some taxes or new laws on the 401Ks and the other retirement plans, and then all of a sudden convert that cash pile into 30-year or 10-year federal government paper. And if they did that, of course, it would ruin those pensions and the values would plummet. And I think that would be an absolute disaster. But, you know, in, in their quest for, for more and more tax money and more dollars to feed the government machine, that's one of the places that they're trying to go. And as I understand it, this has already happened in Brazil. Um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, it's uh, this is, you know, what Doug was saying. Doug Casey was talking about he's an optimist longer term. But he thinks this uh, that we're ready to go through the ringer here cyclically, uh, and I think the, you know the, the the municipal bond market. Some of the problems we're talking about is just part of it. The uh, continually uh, reduced living standards of American people. Um, we you know we have um, the, the, it's just I see the speculation in the commodity markets, Roger. Uh, we're, you're saying here that we're back into a bull market today, uh, that, that the commodities are looking very strong again. Do you think we're going to have a, a big run here for a while, up through the half of the year? Or what, are, what are your thoughts? Well, I think generally we're on the bull side through May, maybe even June. The second half of the year looks pretty poor but for a lot of reasons. But, um, you, know, the, you know, when prices go up and people make money, they take the money. They sell it and they get out because they want to take it. So generally we're strong on uh, – not only the, the futures trading that we do, and I do personally for my retirement, but also for the shares. And uh, while there's going to be some bumps between now and Memorial Day, I think generally the trend is up. And one of the bigger drivers of this, Jay, is the fact that uh, the big private equity groups like Carlisle and Black's, BlackRock, these guys with their many billions, after the Lehman event, they went out and they bought, they went bottom fishing for cheap, beat-up, assets that were knocked down 90 percent they paid cash for them and what they're going to do now according to the wall street journal 
they're going to they're going to come out and sell all these things in new IPOs and sell the stock in them, make a lot of money in their investment. And of course, when they make the money, what do they do? They're going to sell it and take the money and run, and uh, probably turn it into gold. Who knows? Uh, yep. I, so, I so, really, you know, based I, upon that I, IPO thing that I see and the technicals in the markets that you and I follow religiously, I would say <laughs> that the first half looks really good. The second half looks suspect. Uh, the biggest black swan out there, or flying the ointment, from what I can see, is some kind of a credit accident, either in Japan, uh, in the U.S., or in Europe. Yeah. Well, there's no end of possibilities when it comes to credit, because there's so much credit, there's so much leverage out there relative to the income, uh, that I, I think it's just a, a matter of not if, but when. Uh, Roger, we only have a couple more minutes left. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, housing prices continue to fall? Housing yeah. prices continue to fall, and uh, our latest housing forecast is that uh, there's probably at least another three to five years to find the bottom, and we suspect that the national average for the United States for housing prices are going to have to decline over that period of time at least another 25 to 30 percent lower. Eventually, of course, how low is low? Um, I've been saying for some time now that where are, where are housing prices going to compare to? Are they going to go back to the 80s prices or even as bad as the 70s or 60s prices? I don't see the 60s prices because uh, you'll chuckle. I bought my first house brand new, 1,200 square feet on a golf course for $13,000 in 1962. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we're not going to go that far, I don't think, but, you know, uh, back in the 30s, the stock market did, in fact, go to 90% down. There's no, you know, it wow. really took a hit. Well, it did, and, and uh, you know, the, the question, of course, this is what Bernanke is trying to avoid. He's pumping money into the system. Folks like Doug Casey and most others believe that he will be, he will be successful in avoiding that kind of cataclysmic decline. But, I mean, the housing market got so overstretched that it's, uh, it probably still has is going to go down no matter what they do. Roger, I just we have only one minute left. I want to just make a note that you are also very bullish on uh, on the energy sector, and you see a call for uh, 115 in 2011, a minimum, and a chance of 125 for oil. Yep, we but do. We do I, based upon fundamentals and and the technicals as well. Okay, and Roger. I'm sorry. That's all the time we've got. I've got to just uh, lead into next week's show, okay. folks. Uh, thank you, Roger. You can get a uh, Roger's work is available on a trial basis. You can call our our uh, office at seven one eight four five seven fourteen twenty six seven one eight four five seven one four two six. Get Roger's letter, my letter, uh, Chen Lin's letter. Next week, our special guest is Klaus Vote. He's uh, of the Weiss Group. You won't want to miss what he has to say about the European economy and, and a lot of other topics. Uh, in closing, I want to thank our staff at Voice America, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, uh, Ruben Colombe, the operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show, for making this the number one show on the business uh, channel of the Voice America. And until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. <coughs> Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.